I began to feel that I was losing my identity, that the person that I call Clay, the person who put me in this place, the person who volunteered to go into this prison, because it was a prison to me, it still is a prison to me. I don't look on it as an experiment or a simulation. It's just a prison that was run by psychologists instead of run by the state. Hello, this is the Dr. Junkie Show, and as always, I'm your host, Ben Boyce. Today's episode is about the Stanford Prison Experiment, but it's about more than that. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, it covered the Nuremberg Trials, the Robbers Cave Experiment, and the Milgram Shock Experiment. You might want to listen to that episode before listening to this one, but if you prefer the short tell-it-to-me-quick version, it goes like this. The Dr. Sharif, there were two of them, ran this experiment in Backwoods, Oklahoma, where they tricked 11-year-old boys into forming two tribes and then fighting with each other. It was a pretty awful experiment, but they discovered that you could not only initiate a situation where tribalism will result in anger and violence, all you have to do is make it so that two or more groups are competing over some limited resource, but they also found that you could reverse that situation by tricking people into working together to complete a task which threatens both groups equally. Then there was Milgram, who tricked people into electrocuting a stranger until that person died or lost consciousness after complaining about having heart issues when they were being shocked, sometimes by up to 450 volts. The experiment was supposed to prove that certain parts of a system of power can make people occasionally compromise their morals. But what both experiments wound up revealing, surprise, is that human behavior is largely dependent on context on who is in charge, what their role is, and how much discipline we feel like we'll receive if we don't do what someone wants us to do, regardless of the harm it might cause to others. Both researchers were trying to pinpoint the thing or things which made it possible for Hitler to do what he did, but they were also working within a Western culture which has no interest in taking responsibility for anything, so they had to find a specific reason which couldn't be applied to their largely Western base. But they found out you didn't need to add some special feature to power if you wanted to make people behave badly. You actually needed a special feature if you wished to prevent bad behavior. So with all that genealogical background, onto the Stanford Prison Experiment, which took place in 1971 and revealed quite a bit about power, but also about research, about institutions, about how we can ignore what is right in front of us if someone isn't nearby to bring us to our senses. And it's also a lesson in how those in power can often construct the narrative. They decide how the story will be told. It's kind of noteworthy that Dr. Philip Zimbardo, the guy in charge of the Stanford Prison Experiment, went to the same high school as Milgram, the doctor who ran the shock torture experiment. It kind of makes you wonder what they were teaching at that school. Zimbardo was familiar with his friend's work, and he wanted to add to it where Milgram had shown that most anyone can be convinced to hurt someone else in the name of a larger goal which warrants their behavior, some slightly and others all in, Zimbardo wanted to dig into how that human characteristic played out in correctional environments, and he came up with a doozy of an experiment to test his hypothesis, that otherwise normal people will suspend their everyday morals if the role they're called upon to perform demands they do something unethical, especially when they have anonymity but I think it's a bit more complicated than that. Remember, this was way back when things were different and researchers didn't follow ethical requirements. At least that's what Zimbardo was saying about his friend Milgram in his experiment, 
And it's what Milgram was probably saying about the people that came before him, and it's now what we're saying about the Stanford prison experiment. It's also what our grandkids will say about us in 20 years. Zimbardo began by putting an ad in the local paper, and that's important because it drew a particular crowd, a sample population who were interested by the classified, which read, Male college students needed for psychological study of prison life. $15 per day for one to two weeks, beginning August 14th. If you put $15 per day into 2021 dollars, it's around 100 bucks per day. So it's no wonder that he got quite a few students to respond. He gave all the applicants psychological tests. As you can imagine, this was going to take quite a toll on those who participated. And then he randomly assigned roles to each participant, either a guard or an inmate. Now Zimbardo's goal was to prove that prisons are inherently demoralizing. That if you put anyone in the role of an inmate, a low power position, they will wind up conforming, submitting to those in power, even if it's out of their character. And if you put someone in a guard role, they'll also react whenever their power is threatened. They'll follow the role even if it's out of their character. But what he wound up showing instead is that systems of power always cause those caught up in them to act in ways that secure that power, including doing things that are abusive. And more importantly, he showed that those at the highest positions of power are inclined to ignore their role in anything atrocious which happens on their watch. No matter how many times you hear Zimbardo tell this story, and he always tells it a little bit differently, he never starts at the top with the people in charge. Him. He designed the experiment. Well, actually, a few of his students allegedly designed it and ran it in a dorm room where the results were so intriguing that Zimbardo wanted to replicate them in a publishable study. This isn't actually all that uncommon in the ivory tower, but most of the professors I know who publish work with their students recognize their privilege in being positioned to oversee research as opposed to having to conduct it themselves. It seems Zimbardo never made that connection. He always passed this off as his original research. Much like Milgram's experiment, Zimbardo's findings revealed that the power structure, the social environment, the oversight, the tug and pull of, I think I'm supposed to do this or not do that, these things inform our moment-to-moment -moment decision making much more than some underlying, unshifting, morally anchored self. We're like a boat on a roaring ocean of power, high on a wave one moment and low down the next, but unable to have much say over where we are at any given second. There are forces at work in any situation which are much too powerful for us to rise up against. So we acquiesce, and we get to work finding someone to blame for how we behaved. The entire illusion of the person behind the wheel, as if there's some anchored you somewhere behind your daily emotions, desires, and actions, a soul if you will, it's exactly that, an illusion. It turns out that almost anyone can be coaxed into participating in a system which personally benefits them at the expense of others. Zimbardo tried to make this experiment as realistic as possible. He got the police to play along, and they sent cop cars to arrest these guys at their houses. They blindfolded them and then drove them to a makeshift prison set up in the basement of a building in the Stanford Psychology Department, a move that left at least one of the participants believing they were in an actual police department, not the college. They even put bars on the cell doors and outfitted the rooms to look like prison cells. All light was blocked out from outside, so inmates couldn't keep track of time. They locked chains around their ankles and dressed them in bottomless gowns with no underwear. 
It was a totally disempowering environment, much like prison. As soon as the inmates arrived, the guards began playing their role as well, poking fun at the nude prisoners and laughing amongst themselves as they were dressed out. They got to work establishing and reinforcing their own cultural identity. They were the guys in charge of this parade, but they were also following directions. Zimbardo described their role like this. We have total power in the situation, and they have none. They'll have no privacy at all. Their cells, you know, sleeping in rooms with bars on them, there'll be constant surveillance. Nothing they do will go unobserved. They have no freedom of action, but it'll take away their individuality in various ways. In general, what all of this leads to is a sense of powerlessness. That is, we have total power in the situation, and they have none. Even though Zimbardo told the guards not to physically abuse the inmates, he instructed them to keep order and to discipline prisoners as they saw fit. They were told to call inmates by their numbers, not their names, and to constantly reassert their position of authority. They wore uniforms and mirrored glasses, which Zimbardo told them to keep on at all times, a trick which prevented inmates from seeing their eyes, and created a sense of anonymity and separation. They were told to be hardened guards, to take no shit, to put these inmates in their place if need be. This is audio from one volunteer talking to another about how he doesn't feel like he's being tough enough. The first day I was on the job, I knew it was going to be tough. What we were supposed to do was supposed to try to make prisoners lose all sense of identity. And I really didn't think I was going to be able to do it. So. At first it went like you might expect. The inmates were not happy about being abused, so they mouthed off, resisted. They expressed their individuality. When one inmate was locked in the hole, a closet converted for the experiment, he refused to come out until everyone else had their beds and blankets returned. The guards had taken them for an unrelated event. At first, the inmates stuck together, and they realized that their power was in their numbers, so long as they remained unified. I'm not sure how Zimbardo really expected this experiment to play out, but it took less than a day before the whole thing went to hell. It started with inmates barricading the doors with their beds on the morning of the second day. But soon the protests were loud and angry, and the guards decided to pull out the apparent ringleader, inmate 8612, and put him in the hole. The inmates responded with the only weapons they had, their words. They started calling the guards all sorts of names. They insulted their partners and their mamas and their kids. They emasculated them and cracked crude jokes. They joined together to make buffoons out of people who they saw as power-hungry jerks who were abusing their power. And don't forget, this whole time, they all knew it was just an experiment and that someone was watching. They knew that they could leave any time, that this wasn't real. But the power dynamic was very real, and that's what I find most interesting about this entire experiment. At this point, the inmates were still sticking together, and it seems like they looked at this like a job. At least one of the inmates believed he'd be allowed to bring his books and to study. He thought he was just going to be sitting in a cell being observed. None of them really realized what they were getting into. But by day two, they were getting the picture, and the guards were becoming increasingly irritated with their refusal to cooperate. These were young college students, all of them men, all of them white, and they'd been ordered by Zimbardo to act the part of borderline sadistic bully. 
So when inmates started hurling all sorts of verbal abuse at the guards, they responded in kind, but they had more power than mere words, so they didn't resort to simply insulting them back. That was the only difference between the two groups, the methods through which they reasserted their power. Inmates had nothing more than words, while guards could use all sorts of tricks to put inmates in their place. And that's what they did. They responded to the mental abuse by ordering the inmates to do all sorts of menial and sometimes embarrassing tasks. They woke them up in the middle of the night and forced them to do jumping jacks and push-ups while singing religious songs like Amazing Grace. The entire thing fell apart so hard and fast that the ringleader of the uprising decided he didn't want any part of it. Prisoner 8612 wanted to leave, to quit the study. It normally isn't fair to backseat drive and experiment after the fact, like, what if you would have this, or why didn't you that? But the sample used for this experiment is almost certainly relevant to the results. These were cozy, life-having, white, Christian, young, able-bodied college students. Chances are few of them had spent their lives struggling against systemic oppression or responding to individual harassment. They hadn't lived in that sort of environment. Had Zimbardo decided to include some people who had learned to not put up with being treated like shit, this experiment probably would have gone quite a bit different. Remember, Zimbardo was not only the researcher in charge of the entire experiment, he was also playing the role of prison superintendent. And when prisoner 8612 asked to leave, Zimbardo responded not as the researcher, but as the superintendent. He told him that he would ask the guards to lay off, but only if 8612 snitched on his friends. And he used his position of power to defend his actions as part of his role as superintendent, as if his more important role of college professor, you know, the guy running the entire experiment, as if that was something he could simply set aside and ignore for a few minutes. So speaking as the prison superintendent, not the researcher in charge of the experiment, as a volunteer is begging you to leave, Zimbardo said, I'll get the guards to lay off if you snitch. Why don't you go back and think about it? And if you still want to leave, then you can. And he sent 8612 back to his cell. This was confusing, both for the volunteer who had just tried to quit, and to the inmates who thought he was leaving, but instead saw him return to his cell. Shit, it's confusing to me 50 years later, but I think that's because it didn't really happen that way. Zimbardo clearly stayed in his role of researcher the entire time. I mean, he did say the kid could leave if he really wanted to, and no prison superintendent on earth would use such a tactic to appease a prisoner. Power was also at work in the mind of this young white kid who'd been told his whole life that he was in charge, that he could go to college and be anything he wanted, and that he shouldn't let anybody walk all over him. Yet here he was. This too presented an interesting situation, which the researchers didn't really dig into. This guy clearly felt like some sort of psychological manipulation was taking place. But he likely didn't want to admit to his fellow inmates, those whom he'd been leading in a failed rebellion, that his mind had been changed by talking to Simbardo. So instead, he told them that they were actually being held captive against their will. He said they couldn't leave. And then he really started to lose it. And as someone who's been locked up, this is where I started to notice that familiar sound I'd heard dozens of times inside. People who are spinning out of control. I'm so fucked up inside. I feel really fucked up inside. You know, no, I gotta go. I to a doctor, anything. I can't see anything. I'm fucked up. I don't know how to explain it. I'm fucked up inside! Out out! Out out now! God damn it. I'm fucked up! You don't know, you don't know. I mean, God. 
I mean, Jesus Christ, I'm burning up inside, don't you know? I've even been there myself. That's one of the takeaways from this study that should be focused on more often. The ease of destroying someone's capacity to engage with the world without much time or effort, aside from isolation and powerlessness. Emotions are tricky, bodies are complicated, and incarceration is straight-up torture. Okay, so Prisoner 8612 is released on Day 2, less than 36 hours after the experiment began. On a side note, which reveals just how powerful the study was for the volunteers who participated, years later, 8612 became a prison psychologist. He spent decades working at the San Francisco County Jail, helping inmates get through feelings that are not very different from what he experienced that day. It's telling that Zimbardo continued to describe him as faking it, both during the experiment and in describing it later on. But years down the road, after he'd been working in a prison for 14 years, he still described it as the most intense experience of his life. 8612 decided that the only way to get out was to show everyone he had gone crazy. By day three, a rumor was floating around that prisoner 8612 would soon return to liberate the remaining inmates. And again, Zimbardo claims to have decided to play the role not of professor or researcher, but of superintendent. He focused on making believe that his job was to prevent an actual escape. His solution was to order the inmates moved and the makeshift prison dismantled. He wanted prisoner 8612 to find an empty psychology department if he did come nosing around. So the guards got to work. One of two things was happening here. Either, as Zimbardo claimed, this was a precaution, part of the game, just in case 8612 did return. Again, weird since they could all leave any time they wanted. He also discussed trying to talk prisoner 8612 into returning to the program so they could pretend he was a released parolee who'd been rearrested. There's a whole lot of maybes here for a Stanford psychology experiment. The other option, which seems a better fit to the evidence, is that Zimbardo feared 8612 would return with the authorities to force Zimbardo to halt his cruel experiment. But Zimbardo didn't want to lose his shot at making every psychology textbook for the next half century. So he planned to meet them at the door and play the, what, there's no experiment here game. But none of that matters, because inmate 8612 never showed back up. The jailbreak didn't happen, and the guards who had just been ordered to dismantle the prison now had to rebuild it. They spent the entire day disassembling and then reassembling jail cells. They didn't even take a break for lunch. And they weren't happy about it. They took their frustration out on the inmates, because, of course, it was their fault in their minds. They were, after all, allegedly planning a jailbreak from a fake prison they could leave any time they wished. Who else should pay for this loss of lunch? This was day four, and the inmates spent the evening doing push-ups, polishing the guards' shoes, and washing toilets with their bare hands. Of all the guards, one rose to the top, Dave Eshelman, who began to invent all sorts of sadistic things to do. He sexually harassed and assaulted the prisoners, at one point forcing them to embrace in a sexualized charade. He's the one who thought up forcing them to sing religious songs while they worked out. He really embraced his role, and he would later talk about the experiment in unbelievably cold language. When Zimbardo got the volunteers together a few months later, he had quite the exchange with another volunteer who had played the role of inmate and been abused by Eshelman. You put a uniform on and are given a role saying your job is to keep these people in line, then you're not certainly not the same person as if you're in street clothes and in a different role. You really 
become that person once you put on that khaki uniform, you put on the glasses, you put on, you take the nightstick, and you know you you act the part. That's your that's your costume, and uh, you have to uh, act accordingly when you put it on. It harms me. Why? I mean harms. I mean in the present tense, it harms me. How did it, it harm you? How does it harm you? Just to think it, about it, it, you mean that people can be like that? It, yeah. It let me in on some knowledge that I've never experienced firsthand. Uh, I've read about it, but I've never experienced it firsthand. I've never seen someone turn that way. And I know you're a nice guy, you know? You do you understand? I do. I do know you're a nice guy. Then why, I don't, then why I don't do get that because I know what you can turn into. I know what you're willing to do. Eshelman later talked about how he modeled his performance on Cool Hand Luke, a 1968 film starring Paul what Newman. we've got here is failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. I don't like it any more than you men. And there's something to that that's worth looking at. We do indeed glean messages and beliefs from the films and TV shows we watch, from the stories we consume. The example is dead on. He even adopted a bit of a southern accent for the role. Hey, I don't want anybody laughing. No, this no laughing now. No that shouldn't be surprising. How else could Eshelman know how a sadistic guard would act, or an inmate for that matter, except to look at the only available reference, prison films? We all do the same thing every time we watch Prison Break, Shawshank Redemption, Oz, or even so-called real-life prison documentaries. We learn that inmates act that way, that prisons are built this way, that the doors sound like that when they open and close. We can't help it. It's the only information we have, and our brains are designed to immediately access all available data about any subject which pops into our heads, and to base our decisions on what we know, even if that comes from television. Zimbardo spoke about this experiment as if it began on the morning of day one, with the arrests of his volunteers. But it began on the first day of their lives, when the messages surrounding them began to inform their beliefs, their perspectives, their ideas of what a bad guard is, how a good inmate reacts to abuse, things like that. The next event was a different inmate, 819, refusing to leave his cell and participate in count. And since they couldn't punish him, I mean, they promised to punish him once he was finally removed from his cell, but they wanted their revenge right now. So they punished the other inmates forcing them to do menial tasks, like moving boxes back and forth. And it was at this point, on day four, that the inmates began to turn on one another, accepting the domination of the guards and attempting to prevent their own individual suffering by appealing to the very system which was causing their humiliation. 819 was eventually extracted from the cell and thrown into the hole, but he decided he'd had enough too. He wanted to leave. As he was talking to Zimbardo, who claims he was planning on releasing him, he heard the other inmates chanting, Prisoner 819 did a bad thing. Prisoner 819 did a bad thing. And for a second, the psychological manipulation worked. Zimbardo claims that he changed his mind on the spot. He began crying and said he wanted to stay. He didn't want the other inmates to be angry with him. Zimbardo released him anyway, but by now it's hard to argue that he had no idea what he was doing to these kids. Something else strange started to happen on the fourth day as well. Originally, the prisoners had been rebellious and catty during counts, and they refused to comply with identifying themselves by their numbers or keeping their rooms clean. But on day four, 
they brought in a priest, and when he talked with them, many of them introduced themselves not with their names, but with their numbers. That night, as they were chanting at Prisoner 819, they all stood in line. No rebellion, no smart comments, just conformity. They'd been institutionalized, said Simbardo, and it only took four days. I totally disagree with Simbardo here, but more on that shortly. Prisoner 819 was replaced by Prisoner 416, an alternate who had no idea what he was getting into. And it didn't take long for 416 to realize that he was in a real prison environment. That's actually the same thing the chaplain said on his way out, that this was just like a real prison. Shortly after his arrival, Prisoner 416 went on a hunger strike, and the guards responded by upping the ante yet again, by turning the other inmates against him and encouraging them to voice their anger. Thank you, 416. Thank you, 416. Over there. Oh, yeah, you do just the same way. Thank you, 416. They locked him in the hole. They stuffed food in his face. They mocked him. And they played all sorts of psychological games with him and the other inmates, at one point offering to let him out of the hole if all of the other inmates agreed to give up their blankets for a night. Things like that. This is the part of the study where I'm most often surprised that Zimbardo was never charged with any crimes, or even fired from Stanford. Even the participants recognized that they had a legal claim, and many of them thought about filing charges in the days and weeks following the experiment. It stands to reason the next 50 years of textbooks may have been somewhat updated had any of them done so, but they didn't, and Zimbardo became a cultural legacy a hero who discovered that prison makes guards do bad things. It's not their fault, and it's not the system's fault. It's the individual prison. Again, I disagree. The popular story is that Zimbardo called off the study after six days because it became obvious that it was falling apart. But it was obvious that it was falling apart long before day six. In fact, the only reason Zimbardo really called off the study was peer pressure. A graduate student came to see him and witnessed the inmates being marched around with bags over their heads, abused and mocked, and she broke into tears and told him he was hurting people, at which point he claims to have had an epiphany and thought, oh, she's right, and then called off the study. He later married that student, but that's a story for another episode. The point is he pretended to have no idea what sort of damage he was doing until the grad student pointed it out. But come on, really? Peer pressure is powerful, so powerful that we often want to gaslight ourselves into thinking that we weren't doing the awful thing that someone saw us doing. And that's maybe the biggest lesson to take away from these three seemingly unrelated experiments, Milgram, Robber's Cave, and Stanford. Humans can do some terrible things under the illusion that we're doing the right thing, or that we're working as a small part of a huge machine toward a greater good. We rationalize our actions, we minimize our roles, and we let our chronic wokeness point to anyone who we can depict as being so much worse than we are. And in the end, just like Zimbardo, we pretend we didn't realize we were doing anything wrong. How could we have known? Zimbardo noted three types of behavior common in his study. Sure, some of the guards did not become sadistic and wind up torturing inmates, but a few of them did. Zimbardo explained that he noted a very few bad cops, a very few people who would intervene if they saw awful behavior, and a lot of people who were willing to simply look the other way, or to intentionally avoid seeing the abuse so they didn't feel obligated to intervene. Ironically, he was one of those people. He could have ended or altered the experiment any time he wanted to, but I've never heard him describe his role that way. 
Just like the people he talked about later on, those who avoid intervening by burying their heads in the sand, he recognized that they seldom see their own complicity until it's pointed out to them, and sometimes not even then. Zimbardo does this weird thing when talking about this experiment where he basically blames the people who played along for playing along. He talks about Carlo Prescott, who had just served 17 years at San Quentin and Soledad prisons and was on board to help make sure the prison environment felt real. He played a member of the parole board as well. Zimbardo talks about how the guy lost himself in the role and forgot that it wasn't a real prison. In other words, he nailed the performance. He said the same thing about the attorney who they got to come in and pretend to advise the kids of their rights, and about the priest, and about the guards, over and over. He seemed to think that their performances weren't the result of committing to their roles, so much as forgetting that it was a role. He totally removed himself, a Stanford psychology professor who's in charge of paying these kids if he deems their play acting up to par, from the scenario. It's like he wasn't there. And here's where I think Zimbardo misled us. Or maybe he never noticed the systemic issues going on here. As someone who's been at the bottom of the cultural power hierarchy, I was a homeless, addicted criminal for a while, and who's been at the top, I now teach college classes, so I hold the future of students in my hands. I can assure you that the feeling at the bottom is intense. You always feel in your guts the power someone has over you, whether legally or organizationally or even culturally like you really like them and want them to like you. But when the situation is flipped, it's very hard to feel it from the other side. Professors have a hard time remembering that power is always working because we don't feel powerful. We don't feel the student's anxiety, hoping we don't call on them, avoiding eye contact, or thinking, oh no, is he talking about me? Nobody feels it, not from the top anyway. And that's what it seems like Zimbardo is experiencing in all of his interviews about this study the numbness that comes with having access to power. The Stanford Prison Experiment was so popular because of what I've mentioned repeatedly now. The Western world wanted an explanation for the Holocaust, but not one that in any way implicated us or our behavior. We needed to know why it happened, but we needed a reason that painted someone as a monster, someone far away and someone very different from us. And the only way to do that was to continually ignore our own role in the scenario. These people didn't think they were actually prisoners or guards. The parents and priests weren't fooled. They thought it was a psychology lab at a prominent university, and that the guy in charge was a prominent psychologist whose groundbreaking study might well wind up being hugely popular. They knew their roles would be recorded because Zimbardo made sure they knew. He talked about this like it was the greatest thing he'd ever done. These kids were performing, not volunteering. Zimbardo was the puppet master, not the researcher. The real lesson to take away is that people with access to power can create structures that ensure oppression will occur. But if they design these structures properly, they can not only keep themselves off the hook, but also everyone else who plays along. It isn't their fault, they were just following orders. The biggest problem with all of these studies happens to also be the reason why they were and remain so popular. These researchers, Milgram, Zimbardo, and Sharif, they were designing experiments to show that power could be corrupting, but only if certain preconditions were met. In other words, they were trying to design in a small change in a large system which would alter people's otherwise ethical behavior. But no matter how hard they tried, 
Their studies showed that systems of power don't need to be designed with special mechanisms which cause immoral behavior. They need to be designed with special mechanisms to prevent it. They discovered that, when left to their own devices, it's difficult to prevent people in positions of power from becoming abusive. They discovered that Hitler was a buffoon who got lucky, and that if he and others who have misled groups of people at different times and places had actually been prepared and well-advised, things may have gone much differently. He might have won. So what does all of this mean? All three of these experiments reveal that power is dynamic and unstable. It can always be snatched away by those who appear to be powerless, even in positions as desperate as prison. And people can always be convinced to do things that might hurt others if they believe the reason is a good one. But more importantly, these experiments show that power is uninterrupted, operating everywhere all the time. It's the soup we walk around in all day, every day. And unless we deliberately build in checks and balances, methods for ensuring those in positions of power face accountability and restrictions, we can be sure that power will run amok and resort to behavior which we find distasteful. And most importantly, the way we tell the story has a lot to do with how we proceed. If Zimbardo had forced everyone who studied his work to consider his role in engineering a system which incentivized people whom he had authority over to behave poorly and to hurt others, and that their behavior was excused as a result not of their own choices, but of their submission to authority, that that's how all systems work? If Zimbardo had forced those who study his work to consider his role, he may not have made the textbooks, because we don't want accountability so much as we want separation. We want to know that the monsters in the world are different from us. There was nothing unique or groundbreaking about any of these experiments. That's the most terrifying part. It can be incredibly simple to get an angry mob to raid and ransack the national capital if you let them know their behavior is acceptable and defensible. Don't worry, I'll take responsibility. You can convince an entire country that weapons of mass destruction are hidden in a faraway country which we have to invade to prevent worldwide war. And without a shred of evidence, the masses will follow along. You can scream election fraud conspiracies from the loudest microphone in the land. And even though your own people inside official government offices, people you appointed, claim that this was the most secure election in the country's history, people will obey you. They'll assault and hit and spit and wipe shit on the walls of the Capitol. Things that might not normally be in their toolkits, but which their bosses just okayed. We are a species of easily duped people. Perhaps it stems from the evolutionary advantage of spirituality, which many believe developed in response to hopeless situations and unknowable phenomena which we could have no control over. Belief in a god allowed us to get on with our lives without having to give the stars or the volcanoes or the snow much thought. It was all probably just God doing his thing. It gave us a reason to go on when things were hopeless or when depression really had us down. Because no matter how bad it looks, an all-powerful being can still save the day. We've certainly outgrown this trait now, but evolution doesn't just take stuff back when we don't need it anymore. Or maybe it was just our selfishness, and the fact that it's much easier to get on with our lives if we pretend a problem is already fixed, and that we weren't a very big part of it in the first place. Zimbardo ignored his position in the ivory tower in favor of blaming the institution of prison. Milgram said all evil begins at 15 volts, effectively blaming the slow progression from small abuses to atrocities for what was actually the fault of the researchers and the participants. 
What kind of sadistic experiment is designed to make people torture one another? And Sharif made it as simple as saying that all we need to do is trick people into mindlessly working towards a common goal, which threatens them all equally, and then they won't have any more war. But so long as people are competing for limited resources, that competition will cause unethical behavior. All of these strategies of blaming are much easier than devoting ourselves to learning and to activism, to changing the system in a way that assures the natural progression of power can't take place, that abuses are checked, and that unethical decisions are de-incentivized. What a drag, right? One more thing about the Stanford Prison Experiment, about the day four phenomena of apparently becoming institutionalized. That's bullshit. Nobody becomes institutionalized in four days. No one really becomes institutionalized in four years. Yes, it's a real phenomena, but it's not static and consistent. Institutionalization is the result of spending decades of one's life behaving in a way which is always aimed at minimizing the abuse of another. It isn't that we get used to pissing while someone's watching or asking to go to the bathroom. It's that we get used to double-checking our every move to make sure a sadistic system isn't going to punish us for something we didn't mean to do. Something that was just human. That defensive behavior is what sticks, and it becomes institutionalization. Of course it only took four days for these inmates to start making small, logical moves to minimize their discomfort. They had guards sexually assaulting them, interrupting their sleep schedule, mocking them, threatening them. It only took a couple days to realize Zimbardo was down with that sort of behavior to realize he wasn't going to come charging in to save the day after seeing the footage of guards behaving badly. It only took four days to realize he wanted this to happen, and that it would continue to happen. And once that became obvious, once they realized the abuse would continue, human nature kicked in and the inmates got to work saving themselves. Systems of power don't need special subsections or mechanisms to make those in positions of authority behave poorly. They need special mechanisms to prevent people in positions of power, people like Zimbardo, Sharif, or Milgram, from behaving poorly. To prevent people from doing bad things under the guise of greater good. I mean, we have to figure out why the Holocaust happened, right? Maybe psychological torture of a few college students isn't so bad. And that, ironically, is the very sort of thinking that allowed the Holocaust to occur. Our insistence on trying to pinpoint the one thing that made it possible, all while the experimenters who were searching for that cause were actually participating in it. That's why they couldn't find it. I'm a communication guy, so I would be remiss if I didn't also mention the obvious connections to the world we live through in our screens. The reality TV world of glamour and spectacle, of abuse and misogyny. We see people go behind each other's backs and hatch plots to end their seasons, and we tune in because that sort of drama makes for good TV. But just like with Cool Hand Luke's boss Godfrey, we're also learning things from what we see. And when we see reality TV drama, or local news crime reporting, or hypersexualization on primetime, whatever the specific bad behavior, when we see it, we come to expect it a little bit more. Life imitates art, in the words of one of my favorite authors, Oscar Wilde. In post-World War II studies designed to help us understand how such atrocities could have happened over there, actually showed us, over and over, that they will also happen here if we don't actively and vocally oppose the process as it happens. Power without oversight always equals abuse. Maybe not right away, maybe not with every participant, 
But eventually, if not prevented, those with power will resort to bad behavior if not incentivized to do the right thing. Our recent history in the United States has shown us, again, that this is true everywhere, not just in World War II Germany. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm your host, Ben Boyce. Well, you in position, what would you have done? I don't know. <laughs>